through 16, this likely is one of the most important texts for the church in the 21st century to hear. And I tell you that because before we actually look at God's description of the church, I'd like to present to you some of the false pictures that exist of the church in America today. Author and pastor Tom Nelson in Kansas City gives us four distorted images of the church. And as I go through these, see if you can't see like, whoa, I I think I'm pretty familiar with that. Let me give you the first distorted image of the church that he gives us. First of all, the church is like a gas station. And you go to a gas station to fill up, right? So you go to a church. And the church is meant to kind of fill you up. You feel a little empty, a little dry. The gauge has gone a little bit close to the empty sign. Well, you just go to church, and you're going to have some sort of experience, or the music is really going to just kind of pump you up, or you're going to hear some sort of sermon that's going to get you through the next week. The church is a gas station. Another distorted image of the church is that a church is really like a movie theater. You know, at a movie theater, you're looking for comfortable seating. You want to be entertained. You want to be able to drop whatever you've been facing in the week. Just kind of leave it at the door and be engaged and entertained, hopefully in very comfortable seating. Maybe maybe even if you had like a recliner, that'd even be better, right? But it's the idea that the church is an hour and a half of escape. You feel better after you left before than, than before you went in. Another erroneous view of the church is that the church is a drugstore. The church is a place where you can deal with some of your pain. That the church is really meant to be somewhat therapeutic, to kind of help you out, help you feel better about yourself, deal with maybe some of the issues that are in your life. Or then the final erroneous view of the church that Tom gives us is that the church is like a big box retailer. It's kind of one-stop shopping. It is a safe and enjoyable environment for you and your family. In fact, we have something for everyone at every stage. It's a place that you can go to have programs for you and for your family and for people of every age to kind of keep you entertained, kind of connected with others. The church is like a big box retailer. Now, I want you to know that you're not going to find any of these pictures actually given in the Bible. In fact, if you think about them, all of them are distortions. They are all focused on you, right? It is consumerism personified. You see, if life is all about you, then it's like, man, you got to fill me up. You got to help me with my issues. You got to keep me engaged, entertained. And consumerism uh, is really how many people function in life. I mean, you do, I do, right? You, you're always kind of looking for the best deal, whether it be on your groceries or gas, or you're looking like, well, I need these services for my car or my family, and you're, you're figuring this out, right? But if you take that mindset into the church, the consumer mindset into the church, you're going to completely miss what it means to be a believer in Christ. Because the image that God gives us of the church is that the church is a body. Christ is the head, and all those who really truly know Christ are individual members of the body that are connected together, that have local manifestations. The church is a body. And as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, we've seen this emphasized. In fact, God's intent is to glorify himself 
in the church. Remember that great prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 21, it ends? Take a look at it. He says, to him, speaking of the Father, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Who is the church ultimately for? It's for God and his glory. God is exalted through the work that he's accomplished through his son, who's the head, and all those who he's brought into the body. If you think the church is really just about me, my needs, my wants, my preferences, then friends, you are really not understanding what it means to be in the body of Christ. And so like we saw last week, the church has a purpose. Beginning in verse 11, he says this, And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So God has given gifted individuals specific roles for the growth of believers so that they would grow up into the fullness of maturity. And that's exactly what you see in verse 12. Why why these pastors and teachers? Why the giving of the apostles and the word for this purpose? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. We're working together. It's God's work. He's the one who is having the saints that are equipped for the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. You see this? God is equipping the saints so that they will have an interdependency. They'll be working together, each using the unique gifts that God has given them for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain maturity. The full expression of Christ, his character being manifested in his people. That is what a local church is. And so you're asking, well, then how? How does God do this? How does God cause a church to mature in Christ. If this is God's intent and this is how he's glorified, well, what does that really look like? And that's exactly what we find in verses 14 through 16. The answer to this most critical question that is almost being completely missed by the American church is found in verses 14 through 16. How does God cause a church to mature in Christ? Well, let's read. Verse 14, he says, And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So how does God cause the church to mature, mature in Christ? Well, the first thing, you see that in verse 14, is that we need to steer clear from the deceitfulness of error. Did you see that in verse 14? As a result of all that is God is doing, equipping, building, building unity, as a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children. When he refers to them children figuratively, it speaks of their immaturity, right? 
Now, this is what you need to know, that when you and I came to a place where we not only saw the reality of the sinfulness of our own heart in our life, we, we didn't really regard God, love God. We weren't really interested in his word. We were very much interested in ourselves and our own program. We were missing the mark in terms of holiness. That's what the word sin means. When you see sin and the wages of sin is death, then you can really begin to appreciate love, and you're drawn to the fact that Jesus, the Savior, has died and paid the penalty of sin, which is death, on our behalf. And when you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ and Christ alone, you immediately become a child of God. In fact, the Holy Spirit takes up residency in your life, and he is moving you to growth and love and holiness and to experience all that God has for you in Christ. But Once you start as a child, God does not want you to remain as a child. Just like when you have earthly children, right? My wife and I have had, we have four children. It's great when they're really young, but we're always working for them to grow and develop and mature. We, yeah, three, age three, beautiful, wonderful, lots of fun, but it's actually a lot better when they're so much older and they can function and do things, right? You don't have to do everything for them. You don't, you don't actually have to point out every single thing you need to do this and stay away from this because guess what? They have what's called maturity. And that's what God intends for every one of his children. And we do so together because he doesn't want, you see that what he says in verse 14? He doesn't want us tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, of craftiness and deceitful scheming. God doesn't want us functioning like a little sailboat in the midst of very tempest waters where the storm is hitting, where we're just being blown here and there. That is what happens when you are not grounded in the truth, when your relationship with Christ is not strong and fed with the pure milk of the word. What happens is you are kind of just blown here and there. In fact, you can safely say that the people of God, the church, move forward and grow into maturity in the midst of a hurricane of heresies. There is all sorts of mistruth, half-truths tied with things that are absolute error that are out there. And if you are gullible, like a child, and you, you really don't know, just someone tells you, like, okay, I just kind of do that, then, friends, you are not going to mature. You're going to move in all sorts of error. And so, despite the fact that there is all sorts of fallacious arguments and things that are not true and doctrines that are not from the Scripture but that are being taught as if they are, taught by, quote-unquote, spiritual authorities, whether they be pastors in a church or some lady on TV or another guy that's got a radio program or he's got the YouTube channel or this lady is very influential with her books, friends, I want you to know that false teaching is all around And if you don't have the ability to discern actual truth from error, most people, because they're functioning at a pretty immature level, they just buy it and they buy in to error. How do you develop discernment? Because that is what is absolutely, desperately needed. Let me give you a a half a verse that will absolutely help you develop discernment. You ready? You might want to write it down. It's Romans 4, 3, A, and it simply asks this question. What does the Scripture say? If you want to develop discernment, not 
what does culture say or how do I feel about this? But what does the scripture say? And by the way, if you've come up with some sort of new interpretation or you're like, I've got a new slant on the scripture, I know that the church hasn't held this for the last 2,000 years or it's been a super minority position, but we value cleverness and we really value fitting in with cultural trends and this fits in very well. Friends, you might want to be real careful and reconsider because when you start twisting and distorting the truth, you are in effect taking on God and his authoritative word. And so, friends, what is needed is the ability to exercise discernment. Let me just give you some examples. For instance, when you hear knock, knock, knock at your door and you've got some folks and they're representing the Jehovah Witnesses and they want to tell you and convince you that Jesus is not God, but he is the son of God in a far less position than God. Why, if you have discernment, you go, uh, that's actually not what the scripture says. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He received worship. He did all the things that demonstrated his deity. Or uh, when you encounter Mormons and they're like, hey, we are all part of Christians. And that has very much been the push for Mormons to be seen as mainstream Christianity. And here's the, 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 what's taking place. Here's the tragedy of it. Now, there are many people that identify themselves as Christians like, yeah, Mormon, is, it's just kind of like another denomination. And yet, this isn't their lead card. But do you know what the Mormons actually believe about Jesus? They believe that Jesus and Satan are half-brothers. Or as you actually dive into it, they'll refer to them as the, that he is, Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan. How does that line up with the scripture? It doesn't. This isn't another version of Christianity. That isn't Christianity at all. But if you don't have discernment, you're like, oh, okay, and get ready. The push is on, and it's coming on strong. And frankly, many, quote-unquote, people that identify as Christians can't really tell the difference. Um, let me give you some others out there. When you hear that, well, the Bible is full of all sorts of errors, it has to be because it was written by men and men are sinful and they, they make mistakes, right? There's no perfect man, so the Bible's full of errors and it can't be trusted. It might be helpful, inspirational, make you feel better about yourself, give you some thoughts on God. It's good for faith, but not on anything else. Friends, I want you to know that does not line up with the fact that all Scripture is inspired by God. You don't think God is capable of giving us truth? God, who cannot lie? Of course he is. But then, of course, if you hear like, well, you know, Satan and hell, please. We are so sophisticated. We're, we're way past that. Those things aren't real. Why are you buying into like little myths like that? Or the idea that, well, actually, if you really want salvation, you've got to earn it and you've got to keep it. And so you need these different rituals. And what happens is, is that, that people are just unsuspecting. They're children and they're understanding, and they buy into these things. Are you here? And, and I, I'm actually surprised how uh, this comes across, but the idea that God is female, or that God is actually our mother. And these are people that will identify as Christians, in some cases even evangelical Christians, but they're pushing the idea of the, the femininity of God. Or that like sexual activity outside of marriage, where it be homosexual or heterosexual, <sighs> let's just get over it, okay? 
it's fine. I mean, it's, it's just don't worry about it. There's far bigger issues. Well, not according to the scripture. Like, that's actually totally missing the mark. And so these are out there. And you're like, whoa, okay. But now that I've got your attention, let me just introduce some things that have rolled out even in the last few weeks, okay? So, for instance, California Governor Gavin Newsom running for re-election. This is what is actually happening. He is twisting scripture to support the butchery of children. You're like, really? How's he doing that? Well, even though he's running for the governor of California, he has billboards that are being placed currently uh, in Mississippi and Oklahoma, but he has promised more, and they actually quote the New Testament. Like, whoa, look at that Bible verse right there on a campaign billboard. And this is what it says. The billboard says, need an adoption? California is ready to help. And then it quotes this Bible verse right there. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are no greater commandments than these. Mark 12, 31. So here you've got a guy who's advertising in other states that women are to come to California to have their children killed in the name of God. You know what that is? That's evil. That is twisting scripture for your own evil end. But if you do not have biblical discernment, you're like, whoa, that's okay, uh, that's a Bible verse. I think I recognize that. Hey, maybe he's on to something there. Or how about like just this past Wednesday? Uh, we have Vice President Kamala Harris while speaking at an abortion rights conference in Connecticut. This just took place on Wednesday. Maybe you missed it. But our vice president argued Wednesday that Americans don't need to abandon their faith to support abortion rights in the United States. Oh, you don't need to abandon your faith to support the killing of children. You do if you are an actual Christian and you believe that God is the creator and the sustainer of life, that he's created all people in his image, that God is the one who has established right and wrong, upholds justice in the universe, If you don't believe in in the one true God, well, then you probably could buy into this. Like, yeah, you know what? That's right. I can still support uh, a woman's choice to kill her child, and I can still embrace my faith. I want you to know what is needed is biblical discernment. And this is, um, those are some political examples, but I just put them out there because they're just in the news, like really recently. The billboards just went up mid-September. Kamala Harris just said that on Wednesday. But false teachers are prevalent. Some of them exist as pastors and teachers uh, in churches. Some of them have radio or TV programs. Some of them are on the YouTube, and they're looking for influence. And this is how it works. They always mix truth with air. And they're going to like say things that you absolutely agree with and should because they're in the Bible. They're true. But then all of a sudden, they got their own twist. We're like, we've got this new direction where they're going to say things that are not actually true, but if you don't have the ability to discern, you buy into it. It's like you're drawn to it. And uh, to show you the state of affairs in America Day, especially with American Christians, recently uh, there was a report, it kind of speaks of the research that was done on the theological temperature of America, American Christians. 
This is a report that is done every two years. Uh, it's a survey taken by Legionnaire Ministries as well as Lifeway. They come together, they combine their resources, and do they do this massive uh, research to find out what do Americans and what do American evangelical Christians believe. And so I want to just give you a break point uh, summary uh, given by the Chuck Colson Center. This just came out 926 of this year, okay, just a few days ago. But listen to this. So what they have found is that it's not just Americans, but they're evangelical Christians are particularly increasingly muddy on core truths, such as the nature and character of God, the reality of human sin, the role of the church in the world, and the exclusivity and divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, for context, if you're like, what in the world is evangelical Christian? Like, what does that even mean? An evangelical is a Christian believer, and they meet these four criteria. That the Bible is the highest authority for what someone believes. Two, that it is important for non-Christians to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Three, that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that removes the penalty of humanity's sin. And four, that only those who trust in him alone receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. That's all great, right? Of course we believe that. That's, that's right there out of scriptures. That's right. But it goes on. Though that definition is promising, a promising theological start, the results go quickly downhill from there. For example, nearly half of evangelicals agreed that God, quote-unquote, learns and adapts to different circumstances. That's in stark contrast to the biblical doctrine of the unchanging nature or the immutability of God. Survey also found this. 65% of evangelical Christians agreed that everyone is, quote, born innocent in the eyes of God, unquote, denying the doctrine of original sin, and with it, the very reason that people need salvation in the first place, right? If you're not a sinner, you don't need salvation, right? Um, here's another one. 56% of evangelicals agreed with the idea that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Well, that's in pretty stark contrast to Jesus' words in Matthew that without him, no one knows the Father. Sobered up? Get ready for this. The most stunning result had to do with the topic of Jesus Christ's divinity. When asked whether they agreed that Jesus was a great teacher but not God, 43% of American evangelicals answered yes. And that number is up 13% from two years ago. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, you're actually not a Christian. You can call yourself whatever you want, but you don't really know the true God of the universe. This is all shocking and it's worth noting that these failures are not because evangelicals have a low view of Scripture. This is, this is really surprising. Listen to this statistic. 95% of all evangelical Christians believe this. Quote, the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches. Whoa, 95% believe that the Bible is 100% accurate in all that it teaches, and yet... You have these kind of results. So the implication is this. They see, simply do not know what it teaches. And that's either because they haven't been taught 
or they haven't cared enough to learn. But what does God intend for the church? Well, take a look. Look at verse uh, verse 14. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. What are we to do as the church? Well, I'll tell you. It's like what Paul wrote in his final letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he said this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He said this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, who by his appearing and his kingdom preach the what? Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come, well, they'll not endure sound doctrine, but what? When you have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And friends, that is happening, and the results are right here in black and white. And so, how is God going to bring maturity in Christ? How does he glorify himself? He does so when we steer clear from the deceitfulness of error. But second of all, notice what this text points out to us. God causes a church to mature in Christ as we stay focused on building up each other in truth. Take a look, verse 15. We are to what? But speaking the truth in love. We exercise discernment to avoid error, but there is a devotion to building each other up in the truth. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. You see, God wants us to grow together in the truth, and we are to be engaging in the truth, helping one another, talking with one another, preaching the word, studying the Bible in our Bible studies, in our personal time. Why? Because God intends for us to grow to the fullness of maturity. And notice what he says, but speaking the truth in love. We are to present the truth in a way that is righteous, and responsible. We are seeking the best interest of others, and we do so with love. Because the truth can be kind of like a hammer if it's not handled correctly. And if you don't know how to handle the truth correctly, you're just like one of those hawks that's just kind of looking for the next person to mess up, and you're quick to judge them, and you're going to really straighten them out there, you might do more damage than good. Love speaks of not only how we present the truth, But love speaks to the fact that we are committed to the truth. We are committed to a person's best interests, that they actually know what is real and what is true. And you're like, well, how do you do that? Like, could you give me an example? I can. The book of Ephesians. This letter, if you want to know what does that look like, it looks like this letter. Kindness, deep truth presented in a very loving manner in ways that we can really grow. And that's exactly what God intends. That we would what? Do you see that? We are going to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So we are growing together. We are maturing. We're learning. We're taking God's truth. His spirit is bringing that to be manifest in our lives. Convictions are being shaped. Our, our understanding of the ways of God are being developed in our mind. Our behavior is changing because of God at work in our lives, and we are growing up in all aspects into him who is the head, speaking the fact that he's directing, he's leading, he's guiding, and he's glorifying his father. How? through how he is leading the church 
as the church responds to Christ and his word, God is glorified and the church is doing everything that God intended. But I want you to know that um, this idea that we are manifesting Christ, it means that we're manifesting his character. The characteristics of Christ, of joy, truth, wisdom, courage, faith, humility, all of this that was personified in Christ is to be personified in his people. And we do it not just as individuals, but it's meant to be done collectively as the church. Because what is the church? It is the body of Christ. We are all intertwined and interconnected with one another. We are very different, but we all have a common head, and it is Christ himself. And so uh, what happens, though, if you're one of those people that, like, man, I'm all about truth, man. And I'll tell you what, that's really good to be all about truth. But you're just looking to nail someone that just, well, they don't, they're, they're off there. Uh, friends, you're probably going to create a lot of problems. You're not going to lead people or shepherd them well. But on the other hand, if you're all about love, I'm like, ooh, you know, I see what that person is doing. And, you know, that's, that's misguided. No, that, that's just flat out wrong. That's sinful. Or I don't want to say anything, though, because I don't want to rock the boat. I just want to love people. In fact, truth be known, I just want people to like me. And so I'll I'll never actually ask like, hey, why would you be doing that or saying that or thinking that? Because if it's all about you and your insecurities and that you really aren't that committed to the truth, it's all like, I'm just going to go under the banner of love and I'm going to ignore this or look the other way. That's not what this text is telling us. We are to speak the truth in love. John Stott, the great pastor, said this, Truth becomes hard if not softened by love, and love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls for us to hold the two together. And so this is how God is leading his body. The word of God serves like an anchor, so you're not whipped around by all the winds of doctrine and false teaching that is out there, that you actually have discernment. And you know the truth, why? Because you have the truth, you're in it, you're talking about it, it becomes a part of your DNA. And so the word of God becomes kind of like our way of life. God intends for us to grow deep, which means that in our personal times, as we study the word, we're growing. In our small groups, we're engaging and talking about the scriptures. What takes place on a Sunday morning with the preaching of the word, it's all meant to fuel a passion and a worship of the wondrous God And it's to make you strong, to help develop muscles, discernment, where you have strength, vitality, you're thriving and flourishing in the grace of God. It also means that, like even in our conversations, that at times that we're actually going to talk about God or Scripture or what we're learning. I mean, I want you to know that you can be a Christian and have Christian friends. You don't even be married and have a Christian spouse, but you actually never talk about God. Never talk about the Bible, what you're learning. You have people, they've got problems, but what the truth of God's word, why that never ever surfaces. You, you can develop patterns where like, I do church, we read the Bible, I hear some preaching, maybe I even go to a Bible study, but apart from that, well, I never engage. I never take the truth and weave it into my conversation or my relationships. I've got a family, but I've, I never actually talk about God. I never talk about like maybe a scriptural principle. I have a, a marriage, but God never really features in terms of 
us equipping one another, us actually building up one another in truth. Friends, God intends for truth to be at the heartbeat of who we are. And notice, spiritual health doesn't happen in isolation. It happens in community, us together. And what is God doing? We're speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. We are looking like Christ. We're receiving the signals from him. From whom? Do you see that, verse 16? That is a really important phrase. From whom? Who's doing this? Christ is. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Do you see that? It's God who's doing this. Specifically, Jesus Christ, he is bringing people into relationship with himself, people into his body. He gives them gifts, and we are working together. We are growing together, and the body that's functioning well is responsive to the head, and we care for one another. And friends, when that happens, that is exactly what God intends for the church to be. Have you ever heard of muscular dystrophy? It's a, a terrible disease. Uh, what, what makes it terrible is that um, a person that has muscular dystrophy has all the right parts and all the equipment available to function well. They got brain cells, neurons, axons, dendrites, muscles, but the body doesn't work correctly. The problem is not with the brain. So we, we know this, we discovered this, why the brain is sending the signals. And the signals actually go through the nerves. The problem is that the muscles are not responding to the message from the brain. So the brain says, lift your arm, bow down, sit, stand. The signal goes forth. Guess what? If you have muscular dystrophy, your body just isn't responding. And it's a terrible condition. It, it just breaks your heart. Friends, that is a terrible condition if the church is not responding to the head. It's like muscular dystrophy. Do you remember what we saw in Ephesians chapter 4? There's one body, one spirit, all right? There's one hope of our calling. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Remember that? Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. There is one head. It's Christ and he is sending the signals to the body. He does so through his word and his spirit. And all of us, if you or I are truly Christians, we're to be responsive to the head. We need one another. We have to set aside what we want, our preferences, and our self-centered desires to say, God, I'm realizing this is all about you. God, help me to be responsive. Help me to see the need. Help me to take some steps of faith. And watch God at work. You see, every person has a role to fulfill. If you're in the body of Christ, you've got a role to fulfill. We have absolute unity in Christ. We have amazing diversity. Men, women, people from every sorts of different, different, different backgrounds, every ethnicity, all coming together, though, in relationship with Christ and learning to love one another, appreciate, value one another, and engage one another, to build one another up. And we, there's this interdependency that takes place in the body of Christ. And when this happens, friends, churches flourish because the body is responding to the signals and the direction of the head. You know, 
we uh, notice that when our, something's wrong in our human physical body, like, we'll deal with it, won't we? Right? Like, for instance, if you've got a real pain, eventually you'll go visit one of your doctors, right? Or if you find out, like, you know, I just simply can't move my leg without tons of pain or bend my elbow, you'll visit a doctor. And you'll do what the doctor says. And I, I know this from firsthand experience. I've had many injuries in my life. I mean, there's been different times where, like, I couldn't really put on a shirt or certainly not a coat without a lot of pain. So I listen to what the doctor says. I'm very good friends with my physical therapist, and we go to the same church. He's really helpful, and I do everything he says. Even I I continue these patterns on, and I've done so for years. Why? Because I want to play ball with my kids and my grandkids. I don't want to be sitting on the sideline. I'll do what it takes. And some of you, you don't need to put your hand up, but I can tell just looking around, and I know you've even had, like, joint replacements, right? Knees, shoulders, right? Why do you do that? Because, man, my arm or my leg is just not working, or I can't walk anymore, and I I actually value walking. I want to do this. I'll go through the pain and address the issue so I can be much more functional. Well, friends, that's exactly what God is doing perhaps right now. The surgical instrument of his spirit and his word moving in like a sword sharper than any two-edged sword cutting to the real issues, bringing us to an understanding, are we really responding to the head? You see, this is what God intends. We realize that our personal faith permanently unites us with the body of Christ. This is his doing, and he fully intends for the body of Christ to be high-functioning. You know, when it comes to uh, a local church, it's really like uh, a high school football team. Um, it's not like, uh, a church is not like a college football team. In, in college, you know how college football works? You have all these coaches, and they're always scouting talent, man, all around the country. And everybody's looking for those blue chip players, right? And in college, man, you find someone that's really talented and really gifted, guess what? You're going to go and spend all sorts of time with them and their family. And, and, all, and there's, there's been documentaries on what they've done to recruit certain players. And it's gone beyond just like, this is reasonable, right? Sometimes it's even illegal, but we're not going to go there, right? But they'll do everything they can to recruit the right players to their teams, right? But that's not how it works in high school. Oh, I, sure, every once in a while, a really talented player like moves into your district, right? And that's great. But usually how it works in high school is you've got to develop the talent that you have. And that doesn't just start in high school. Actually, it starts in elementary school. They learn just the basics, right? And then they move into junior high. And then you've got JV, and a lot takes place on JV because they're really training you on your positions. But then finally, you may get an opportunity to play for the high school varsity team. That's how it works in high school. I tell you that because that's how it works in the local church. Oh, yes, every once in a while, God brings just like this amazingly gifted gal to your church. Or, uh, you know, someone that's just well-trained, and they've been serving the Lord, and this guy's awesome, right? And they guess what they do? And we see this. I mean, this happens on a pretty regular basis at Fellowship, and they hit the ground running, right? Like, wow, where did you come from? Whoa, look at that. How awesome is that? But for the most part, guess what? We are training people from the very beginning, just your new life in Jesus, and helping you grow in your relationship and equipping you. And that's how it works. It's really like this connection continuum. You're believing, which helps you understand to belonging, 
which leads to being involved. And that's what God is doing in this text. If you're a Christian, it's more than just your believing. You belong. You have something to offer. We need you. We need each other. And that's what God is doing. When you look at this text, like verses 15 and 16, you know what this is, don't you? This is discipleship. By the way, that is what Jesus commissioned us to do. Did you guys know that? He's commissioned us to do what? To make disciples of all the nations. What does that even mean, make disciples of all the nations? Well, let me just give you our simple definition of discipleship. It is the intentional and relational process of maturing Christ-centered believers and mobilizing them for ministry. Why, where did you get that definition? Like, right here from this text. This is God's intent for the church. You see, the body of Christ is fearfully and wonderfully made, isn't it? It's a manifestation of the glory of the Father. And we're not just people that are coming to church. Friends, we are the church. We are the body of Christ. And when we function in keeping with the direction of the head to the glory of God, I'll tell you what happens. God is glorified. His word is obeyed, heeded, and honored. The work of the church actually happens as God intended. And the people who have yet to believe in Jesus see an accurate picture of the transformation that comes from trusting in Jesus Christ. Friends, we, this is how God brings about maturity through the church, when we steer clear of error and we stay focused on building up one another in the truth. Friends, that's what God is doing in our church. We are learning to love one another, growing, serving, forgiving. We're building up one another. We take opportunities to serve. We're multiplying. We're discipling. Why? Because that's what God has always intended the church to be. And I want you to know it is so grateful to see God doing that in our midst. And this is the plan that he wants to continue. God is glorified in the church as maturity in Christ is manifested in our lives. So what we're going to do now is we're going to actually take some time to talk with God. We're going to, as a church, come and pray. And then after we pray, and I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, we're going to end partake in communion, okay? Now, you do not need to be a member of Fellowship Bible Church to partake in communion, but you do truly have to know Christ. In fact, the Bible warns if you're not a real Christian, you should not partake in communion. What you should do is trust him now. If you didn't get one of these cups, uh, just put your hands up. One of our ushers will make sure you get one. But with that being said, I'm going to lead us in time of prayer before we partake in communion. So if you want to just bow your heads, close your eyes, all of you who are watching online, would we now just seek the face of the Lord together? And would you, right now, just praise God for his greatness, for his grace for his love. Would you thank him that he made you and he made the people sitting next to you? Would you praise him that he is a God who redeems lives once lost in the pit, once spiritually dead and makes them alive? Would you thank him for the power of the gospel? Would you thank God that he has given you life in Christ? 
nothing you and I deserve, but he has, by grace, called us his own, cleansed us from sin, given us life, purpose, meaning, identity, a certain hope, eternal life in him. For the times that we've not walked in holiness, would you... uh, you just confess any sin that the Spirit of God brings to your mind? Ways that you've missed the mark, attitudes that you've held. Perhaps as we have looked at this text, you see that there's some real steps of growth, or perhaps you've you've intentionally held out. Whether it be in how you live, or how you give, or how you serve, would you just right now talk with God about these issues? Would you thank God that you are loved unconditionally in Christ? It's finished. He's paid it all. We walk in the newness of life. We don't live in the past. We live in his presence. Would you thank God for grace? you now ask God that through how we live and how we give, how we serve, how we love, that this would be done in his strength for his glory, that we would be everything that he intended Fellowship Bible Church to be, a perfect Savior that is united to imperfect people through the loveliness of Christ and the power of the gospel. So as we come, Lord, to communion, Lord, you have made this possible through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We have relationship with you. We have a certain future with you. We have forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the return of Christ, and we commune deeply with you. We love you because you have first loved us. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.